Father, we do look to your word this morning to sanctify us, to do the work of showing us what is, in fact, the way of temptation and the way out of temptation, showing us how, in fact, you have delivered us from evil and from the evil one. Lord, we know that this is possible because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3, specifically as we continue our study in, in uh, this Gospel. Mark chapter 3, we're going to read verses 7 through 30. So if you have your Bible open, you can follow along as I read and I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 30. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd, lest they crush Him, for He had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. And, who, and whenever the unclean spirits saw Him... They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crown gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind." And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the, present, by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is God's word. Please have a seat. The Gospel of Mark is written so that we might learn who this man, Jesus, is and what it is He came to do. It's introducing us to us, not just for the purpose of knowing something about Jesus, but so that we might be able to enter into an eternity-saving relationship with Him. That is the ultimate goal of all of the Gospel writers. And, And that's important to understand that the reason these books are given so that you might and enter into a real saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And now, it's 
it's not always easy to know well, what does that relationship actually look like. For there's lots of different kinds of relationship you can have with a person, just like there's lots of different kinds of relationship a person can have with Jesus. And we'll actually get to that next week more in another way as we look at the uh, parable of the soils. But this morning, in this particular passage, we see a variety of examples of people who relate with Jesus in different ways. And I want to look at those in a little bit more detail so that hopefully we'll be able to identify how is it that, what, what does our relationship with Jesus look like? In what ways do we reflect some of these relationships that we see reflected through the different groups in this particular passage? Because, of course, the nature of your relationship is of utmost importance with Jesus Christ. It can be a relationship that has some temporal benefits or it can be a relationship that has some eternal benefits. And I think that we are after the latter. So let's look into these and see what different relationships we see existing in these different groups that Jesus encounters. The first of all, we see the crowds, the crowds that are following Jesus. As we look at the opening uh, the passage we just read, it says, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. So there is a large crowd following Jesus. Jesus, as we know, has been going throughout uh, the land. He's been healing everybody who came to Him. He's been casting out demons right and left. There's really been no discrimination against those who have come to Him for healing. He has healed them. And word has gotten out. I mean, this, is, this was not a once or twice kind of thing. This was a, a, a well-propagated uh, set of miracles that Jesus has done. For if you look at the, the geographic range from which the places are listed here, they're quite, they're quite large. I mean, you think of Jerusalem and Judea, which would have been in the southern part of Israel. He's in the area of Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee, which is further north in Israel. You have mentioned of Idumea, you have mentioned of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were towns on the Mediterranean coast much further north. So there's a, there's a, a vast geographic area, especially in a time when they didn't travel by you know, cars or traveling by horseback or more, most likely just walking. People have made a, a great effort to come and find Jesus. Why? Because they've heard about all the things that He's been doing. They hear that He's been healing people. Now, that tells us a variety of things, of course, about the people in Jesus' day is there's, there's a lot of hurting people out there, a lot of hurting people that otherwise had learned to live with whatever was ailing them, perhaps had hidden it from the rest of the world just so that they could function, but the hope of a man who's healing everybody he encounters has brought them out, has brought them to go ahead and come forth with the thing that has ailed them. So they are seeking Jesus to provide some relief from their pain, whether it's a physical pain, whether it's a spiritual pain, whether it's the, the aspect of being possessed and controlled by some evil spirit. And so they come in droves seeking to find relief from Jesus. Now, what we find is this crowd doesn't always stay with Jesus as we follow the Gospels through. There, there comes a time in Jesus' ministry when the crowd dissipates. They, they've come to see Jesus, they've come to, to receive their benefit, and then they go home. They start to dissipate because things get a little bit tricky to follow Jesus. He starts saying some challenging things. You want to follow me? Well, guess what? It's going to cost you everything. 
The Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Are you willing to do that? To the rich young ruler who says, what must I do to have eternal life? He says, well, you know the law. He says, I've kept the law. What do I lack? He says, well, sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. That's a pretty big cost. He says some hard things that John records. He says, you know, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has a part with me. Well, that, again, this is something hard for the crowd to hear. So they come, they want their healing, they want their fix, but when things get hard, they go home. And I would suggest that a lot of us have, at least initially, that kind of relationship with Jesus. Here's a man who offers hope. We know we need some help, and so we come to Jesus seeking it. And He often provides it. Remember, He does that indiscriminately with those who come to Him for help. He doesn't require you. He doesn't only heal those who have believed in Him. He heals all who come to Him. In fact, we see a lot of the people, after their healing, not doing the very thing He's instructed them to do, and yet they still go away healed. We see people coming with evil spirits being cast out, and at one point He he describes the nature of that person. When When evil spirit is cast out, He wanders through the empty ways and finds, when He comes back to that person to find that it's still empty, he makes his home once again, but now brings seven spirits worse than himself, so that his, original, his, his, his later condition is worse than his original condition. So we know there are people who receive benefits of healing from the Lord without having a long-term relationship with Him. They just want Him while they feel the need. What does your relationship with the Lord look like? Do you find yourself in a relationship with Jesus when you have some particular felt need? And that's the time when you find yourself in prayer. I mean, we have to be careful. Even the nature of our prayers are often so focused on the very things that brought the crowds to Jesus in the first place. We pray for people to be healed of their ailments, whether it's, you know, cancer or virus or uh, some other debilitating disease. We pray for things that are related to our work. And not that we shouldn't, we should pray for those things. I mean, we are whole people. The danger is that we get caught up in only praying for those things. We're focusing on the the temporal benefits that Jesus can bring, and we don't think far beyond that. The trouble is, those people who came to Jesus to receive the temporal blessing walked away with that temporal blessing, but they missed out on something they could have had that was far greater. For Jesus didn't just come to bring a temporal relief of physical ailments or or particular Uh, fix to the problem that you find yourself in in this world. He came to bring life that lasts for all eternity. That was His goal. That is the goal of His ministry. In fact, we read time and time again that the reason He was performing the physical miracles was so that they would know He had eternal life to offer, so that they would know that He had a message they needed to listen to, to believe. But I think a lot of people in our day, in the church today, across the world, they have a relationship with Jesus that is very uh, come and go. When they need something, they come. When they don't feel the need, they're not there. It's a kind of relationship that you want with someone on your own terms. You don't want to have to have the responsibility of the relationship. You just want the benefits of that relationship. And so it's a very sporadic, very temporal one. It's not one that Jesus came ultimately to offer. 
Another relationship we see illustrated comes from his own family. We skip down a little bit, verses 20 and 21, and we learn about them. It says in verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, that is, that is a, one of those scratch-your-head kind of verses. Think, what on earth? Does, did Jesus have bad relationship with His family that they want to seize Him? They think He's out of His mind? I, I think that we can, be, we, can read too, uh, we can read this to be much more difficult than it actually is. I don't think that His family is interested in something not good for their own family member. I think they're interested in something that would be healthy for Jesus. What they're seeing, if you'll notice, that He is put himself in a situation by what he's doing and saying that has created a problem. He, he's not even able to eat, it says. He's threatened to being crushed. He, he's facing, he's bringing to himself all kinds of threats and difficult situations. So, it's only natural. I mean, think about any mother or father when they see their child putting themselves in a situation that's potentially dangerous. They want to rescue them. They want to get them out of it. Now, it would be also fair to say that his family, while they'd heard about the crowds and what was going on around Jesus, they hadn't seen the miracles that Jesus was doing. In fact, if we read later, and Mark hasn't recorded him going to his hometown yet. He'll do that in Mark chapter 6. But other gospel writers record that when Jesus does go to his hometown of Nazareth, that he's able to do very few miracles there because they didn't believe. Instead, they said, isn't this Mary's son, Joseph's son, whom we know? enlisting all the brothers. We know them. So, they had a very hard time believing that He was anything other than one like them. And so, He didn't perform many miracles, if any, there in His hometown. So, that's the experience of His family. They have heard that Jesus is doing things that's getting a lot of attention, perhaps heard about the miracles, but they haven't actually seen any, even though they've known Him. So, it may be that they're, they're acting purely out of ignorance of who Jesus is and what He's doing, but certainly seeking His well-being. We want to seize Him. Another, word, another way of translating that word seize, which is pretty hard, is to take charge over Him. You are doing things that are causing you harm. We're going to come take charge, take you out of the situation, rescue from you from the danger that you've brought about for yourself. It's a decision that I would say is made out of ignorance towards who Jesus is. I say that because later on we find that his family members, many of them, did become believers in who he was. Mary is there at the cross. When Jesus is hanging there, he looks at John and says, this is your mother. This is, take her and care for her because she is a believer in me. Later, his own brother James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, writes a letter that we have in the New Testament. So we do know that his family did later come to at some point believe who he said he was. But at this point, they're still in ignorance, acting in what they think is best interest, but acting nonetheless in ignorance. And I think a lot of people in the world do that with Jesus today. They act with regard to Jesus just out of ignorance. They don't really know who He is. They don't really know who He's claimed to be or what He has sought to do. And so they try to put Him in a category that would make sense with the worldview that they have. I mean, this was a prominent way that uh, intellectuals would look at Jesus. How do we reconcile Jesus with the many other religions and religious leaders that have existed in history? Can we fit them alongside one another? And if we can simply say that Jesus was, 
he certainly attracted a crowd, he gave some great teaching, he was a great moral teacher, then it's easy to reconcile him alongside the Muhammads or the Buddhas or the other uh, religious leaders in the day who have taught, taught truths that people have valued. And it's easy to write them off if you're that way. The problem is that's a, that's a, that's a conclusion that is drawn without all the facts. And that's what we mean by ignorant. We don't mean ignorant in the insulting way. We mean ignorant in the fact that you're not aware of all the facts about Jesus. If you read carefully the gospel accounts of Jesus, you'll find that you cannot put Him in a category of just only being a great moral teacher. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote about this in Mere Christianity, kind of a famous uh, uh, familiar passage to an argument that he makes. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we, we must not say, he writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the familiar argument. Maybe you've heard it. He is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. But the only rational decision that you can make, given his claims and seeing what he's able to do, is that he is, in fact, Lord. Now, that that does bring us with another interesting group, because there is a group that actually was willing to say, not that he's a lunatic, but he is equivalent with the devil of hell. And that was the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. And we see them coming to him in verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now, this is not a casual remark they make, by the way. This is, this is a narrative that they have established after counsel among themselves. I want you to look back up. If you have your Bibles open, look to the verse immediately preceding where we started reading today, back in verse 6. This is right after Jesus has healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day with the withered hand, and then the, and which the Jews did not like, the, the religious leaders didn't like the way He did that. He was, he was violating the way in which they had become, they, they had practiced the Sabbath by His healing. And so it says in response, in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And that's an interesting mix, the Pharisees with the Herodians, by the way, if you think about it. These are not two groups that would ordinarily mix, and yet they're holding counsel together, most likely back in Jerusalem, about what do we do with this man? What do we do with this man? So here we see a, uh, a delegation has been sent from Jerusalem of scribes who are going to now start propagating the narrative they want people to believe in light of what they've seen. Because they can't simply try to tell people that He hasn't done anything miraculous. 
They're not in a place where his, his family was, where they hadn't seen it. They had seen it. He'd done it right in their faces. And he, they knew the people had seen it. They couldn't tell the people a believable story and say that, well, he's not the Messiah. He's, he hasn't really done any miracles. You're all mistaken. So how do they explain the fact that he's doing these miracles? And you could say, you know, you could say, well, there's one of two choices. He's either doing them because he has the power of God at work in him, or he's got some other power at work in him. So the story they craft is that the way, the reason he's able to do these miracles, it must be from the other power. It must be the, by Beelzebul, as they say, the prince of demons, that he's doing these things. Now, if you're curious where that term comes from, Beelzebul is an interesting phrase. It's a derivative of the Beelzebub. Beelzebub is the Aramaic form, reference to Baal was the word for God in the Aramaic, and so Beelzebub was the god of the high place. Beelzebul is kind of a, a Jewish derogatory form of that word because that's, that's not the lord of the high place, but it's the lord of the dunghill. That's what the Jews would call him instead of Beelzebub. So that's what they're saying about Jesus. He is by Beelzebul, the lord of the dunghill, that he's doing this by the prince of demons. That's how he's able to do these miraculous things that you're watching. Now, Jesus doesn't have a hard time confronting this narrative. And by the way, that just brings us to the idea that, that, that the, the powers that be are certainly not, not uh, uh, beyond creating narratives to craft what they want people to believe. I mean, these were the religious leaders, the scrutiny ones, the people who see it under what they believe to be the moral right of God, who are willing to come up with stories to explain away what they don't want people to, to understand. I mean, this, is in, this can happen in the church, this can happen in the government, this can happen in, in school, this can happen anywhere. The one trustworthy thing we have is we have the Word of God, which has to take precedence. So Jesus confronts their argument with some simple logic, some very simple logic. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So that's just a simple axiomatic phrase. He's making a statement. Here's the argument against that. This doesn't make rational, logical sense. Your narrative doesn't hold true. Based on its own merit, it just doesn't work. So what's the other conclusion, he says? So if that doesn't hold true, what do you see as evidence? And that's when he goes on to say the next statement. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now that is not so subtle reference to what Jesus himself is doing. He's saying, in essence, I'm coming into Satan's house and I'm plundering his goods, and the only way that I am able to do that is by being stronger than him. That's what he's saying. Now you think, well, okay, well, what is Satan's house exactly? Well, you'll find that Satan's house is a reference to the world, especially in Jesus' days. We see the, the, the substantial number of demonic activity that was going on in the first century is, is showing that this is the domain of Satan. 
You know, Paul makes a reference in Colossians 1, verse 13, we, looked, we had it in our liturgy, talking about this is the domain of darkness that God rescues you out of. In John chapter 14, when Jesus is about to go to the cross, He says, I have come to, how does He say it? I'm going to get it wrong here. Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So there is this recognition that the world is under the domain of Satan. This is the one that has held captive the people. And if you're going to plunder his goods, what are the goods in his house? Well, Satan isn't concerned about wealth, physical things. He's concerned about thwarting the plan of God. God's people are being held as his plunder, as his captives. So Jesus is coming to plunder his house, to set free those who have been held captive. Now, how does Satan hold people captive? Well, he convinces them to follow some God that isn't God. It's very simple. He is the one who introduces all kinds of idolatry to the world. All kinds of alternative ways that you can find life other than pursuing it from God Himself. So convincing us that we can find life if we just seek our own comfort. We can find life if we seek our own uh, social status from people. We can seek our own life if we have enough money. I mean, advertisers are doing his job. Every day they're presenting this, this thing or this thing is the thing that you lack and you need. And if you only had this car, if you only drank this beer, if you only did this, then you would be happy. Your life would be fulfilled. And we, and we believe them because we want to believe them. We want to believe that life and satisfaction and joy is completely within our control, within our grasp. And so we listen and we go from one idol to another idol to another idol. But an idol, idolatry is like an addiction. And by the way, addictions are things that we hold up as idols. We go, we go to this thing that we get addicted to because it gives us some immediate sense of fix. It gives us immediate sense that, yes, it is giving us what we're after, so we keep going to it. The problem is what we don't realize until it's too late is that the very thing that we've become addicted to is the very thing that's killing us. I mean, that's what idolatry is doing. But yet we remain in what he calls the domain of darkness. It's a good term to call it darkness because we remain in the dark. We don't see it. We don't see that we're worshiping things that will not give us life. So Jesus has come to set us free from the darkness, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light as He exposes the falseness of these idols, as He reveals Himself to be the bread of life, the one who holds out the only thing that can feed your soul and grant you eternal life. So He is setting the captives free. That's why He came. That's the argument He's using. So you have all these different kinds of relationship, that of the crowd to Jesus, who look to Jesus, who gives them hope that He can relieve their present situation circumstantially, heal their physical ailment, solve their financial crisis, whatever it is. But it's a very one-sided relationship. It's a, it's a very sporadic relationship. It's a relationship that you only have when you feel that particular need, and then you go about your own way. Or you can have a relationship that's built on ignorance. 
I don't really know the story of Jesus, so I'm going to relegate him to something that I don't have to pay attention to at all. Or we have a relationship like the scribes, which we don't want that one, by the way, because that, that was not a decision made out of ignorance. It was, a, it was a conclusion they were drawing being fully aware of who Jesus was. That's why he goes on to talk about this unforgivable sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because they were, they were accusing Jesus, the power behind Jesus' work to be not of the God, but of Satan himself. Now, if you're concerned about committing this unforgivable sin, if you're actually concerned about it, I can pretty much guarantee you, you haven't done it. <laughs> in fact, R.C. Sproul has an interesting commentary on this. He says that this is really more of only a theoretical, it's impossible to actually commit this, or no one on earth has actually committed this, because once Jesus gets a hold of you and has opened your eyes, and you will not uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So, make of that of what you will. I mean, we know the way into heaven and the way that keeps you out of heaven. It's either you believe in Jesus as the Son of God or you don't. So, we don't need to get lost in have we committed the unforgivable sin. We really need to be concerned about, well, what does our relationship to Jesus look like? So, what is, the, what is the relationship we need to have? Well, it's one like the disciples have. That's why I saved them. We'll look at them briefly now. If you go look at the disciples... He says this about them in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There's so much in that. But first of all, how do you have the right relationship with Jesus? If we just look at the first part, how did the disciples gain it? He called them. He called them to Himself. It's an interesting way He put it. He, and called to Him those whom He desired, not those who had pursued Him, those who had showed the most promise, those who had put in their application and said, consider me, which, by the way, would have been the way most... Uh, great teachers in the ancient time would have gathered their disciples. You would have had to try to meet the requirements that they set forth. But Jesus doesn't do that. He chooses those whom He desired. You know, in the Gospel of John, He goes on to talk about, He said, you did not choose Me, but I chose you to bear fruit. I chose you. So there is, how do you become a, enter into the right relationship with Jesus? He has to choose you. What can you do to get His attention? Nothing. Because you don't know you need His attention. He chooses you. He opens your eyes that you might see the truth. He whispers in your ear that He is real, that He is risen, that He is the Lord and Savior. He awakens your heart. Now, there is a practical way He does that, and you see that here with the disciples. What does He call them to do? He calls them to go out so that they might uh, preach 
and have authority to cast out demons, that they might go out to preach. We come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because God has put in place, Jesus has sent out those to preach, to proclaim what is true. We call that the the external call of God that goes out to the world. And it is meant to go out to all the world. That's why he says in his great commission, you know, go, go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. There is this picture in the New Testament where he is sending his messengers to the four corners of the earth to gather in all that are his elect. And how do we find out who his elect are other than the outward external declaration or proclamation of what is true of the gospel? So that from our perspective, as a human perspective, the only people we know who are internally called by Jesus are those who respond to the external preaching of the Word. For there is that external call, which is meant to go out to all the world, and there's that internal call, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, the scribes were blaspheming, that awakens a person to see what is true, to see Jesus as who He really is, the Savior of the world. Because when you see that truth, it isn't a hard decision to pay whatever cost is required to be a follower of Jesus. The question this morning is, as you evaluate your own relationship with Jesus, is what does it look like? What does it look like? And by the way, what does a disciple's relationship with Jesus look like? There's two things that we see. One... If you look closely in verse 14, and he appointed 12 12, so that they might be with him. When he called his disciples, he said, come, follow me. I mean, that's really it. Are you with Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? He says quite frequently, If you love me, you will keep my commands. That's how you know if you love Jesus. Are you with Him? Do you spend time with Him? What does your prayer life look like? Is it limited to, Lord, help me. I'm in a financial crisis. Lord, help me. My body's hurting. I need healing. And I'm not saying don't do those things. Do those things. He is the one place to go to when you need those things. But I hope your prayer life is not limited to those things because there's a much greater benefit that we are after. We are after living eternally with the Father. We are after the kingdom of God coming. The prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray was a kingdom-minded prayer. If we, We read it every time we come together and worship. That's part of our liturgy. We build it in. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is our ultimate aim right there. The hallowing, the praising, the glorifying of God. That should be our ultimate aim in life as the follower of Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our great desire is to see the kingdom come on earth. It's only after that that we say, Give us this day our daily bread, which I would put into that spot 
anything that you need today, whether it's physical healing, daily bread, financial help, a new job. You, you put it in the prayer, but you'll notice where it comes. It isn't the priority. It's not in the front seat. So what does your prayer life look like? How often do you go to the Lord in prayer? Does your relationship look more like that of the crowds, more like His family, or more like His disciples? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the Gospels and how they show us who the person of Jesus is and what He came to do. He came to plunder the strong man's house, to set free those who have been held captive under the darkness of the domain of Satan. You have come to give eternal life to those who would be close to you, those who would follow you. Father, help us to hear that internal calling of of the Holy Spirit this morning and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.